0: chapter 14 of hellenic history this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by jane bennett melbourne australia hellenic history by george willis botsford chapter 14 the age of pericles 1 imperialism one political and military 461 to 445 athens now independent of sparta builds up a new alliance 462 to 1 the spartan insult to athenian arms had paralyzed the laconian faction within athens and had brought to the front the party of themistocles and ephialtes which was bent on making for their city an independent career in Hellenic politics. Having lived under a monarchy till after the Persian War, the Argives adopted a democratic constitution patterned after the Athenian, and this reform prepared the way to a close alliance. Thessaly too, whose cities were generally governed by the old nobility, joined the new league. Alliance with Megara, control of the Corinthian Gulf, 459. Soon afterward, the Democratic Party in Megara got the upper hand, and sought of Athens protection from her more powerful neighbour Corinth, who was attempting forcibly to annex the little state. Athens welcomed the proposal, and by extending her protectorate over at acquired a commercial position on the Corinthian Gulf. The arrangement secured for the new ally, her independence, and easy access to the Athenian markets in which her people sold their garden products and their manufactured wares. In the following year, when the helots at Mount Ithomae surrendered with the privilege of withdrawing from Peloponnese, Athens settled them at Norpactus, near the mouth of the Corinthian Gulf. She was ambitious to gain over this water the control which she already exercised over the Saronic Gulf. Her principal motive to this policy was the further development of commerce with Italy and Sicily. War between Athens and the Peloponnesians 458 to 449. The aggression of Athens in these and other quarters however stirred her rivals Corinth and Aegina to war. These two states which had once enjoyed a commercial and naval superiority over Athens now found their trade choked by the rise of Piraeus, and their very existence threatened by Athenian ambition. Although most of her forces were engaged elsewhere, Athens was able to overwhelm the combined navies of the army, to besiege Aegina, and to defeat a Corinthian army which had invaded Megaras. At this time the fear of a general war with Peloponnese determined Athens to enter vigorously upon the construction of long walls, begun by Cimon to connect the city with Piraeus. They ran parallel about four and a half miles in length and 550 feet apart, thus enclosing a broad, strongly fortified road from Athens to her chief source of supplies. After this completion, The city could never be effectively besieged so long as her fleet held the sea. The enemy might invade Attica and destroy property, but could not hope to carry the walls by assault. Meanwhile, the Athenians, dwelling in security, could subsist indefinitely on imported food. Battle of Tanagra and of Enophyta, 457. Alliance with Boeotia, Phocis and Locris. This measure brought home to the neighbours of Athens, more forcibly than ever, the warlike intentions of the democratic city. The contagion of her aggressive spirit spread to her friends in Boeotia and Phocis, but moved her rivals to more energetic opposition. The Peloponnesian League introduced an army into Boeotia, To encourage the aristocrats of that country in their resistance to Athens, and especially to restore the Boeotian League under the supremacy of Thebes, who through Medism had lost her former leadership. The Athenians marched out to meet this army, and a fierce battle ensued at Tanagra. Having won the victory, the Peloponnesians returned home, leaving Thebes to defend her own supremacy. Two months later, the Athenians again took the field, overthrew a Boeotian army at Aenophyta, and made themselves masters of all Boeotia. Although in most towns they set up popular governments, it seems clear that in some cases they recognized and agreed to support existing oligarchies. Phocus was already an ally. The Locrians were coerced into the League and compelled to give hostages new athenian alliances in peloponnese fall of aegina 457-6 about the same time athens conquered some territory from corinth and won most of Achaea to her alliance already Troezen, in which from of old ionian blood mingled with dorian had cast her lot with the kindred city that seemed destined to sweep all eastern hellas within the sphere of her hegemony after a siege of two years egyana surrendered dismantled her walls and entered the delian confederacy paying a tribute of thirty talents a year height of athenian power on land 456 the long walls were now completed And Athens was secure from every attack by land and sea. The imperial ambition of Pericles seemed to be wholly justified. In a period of five years, Athens had built up a continental federation, including parts of Peloponnese, extending continuously from the Isthmus to Thermopylae, and embracing intermittently the inconstant Thessalians. Time for organising this alliance bade fair to create a power on land superior to the Peloponnesian League. The Egyptian Expedition, 459-4 to 4. The ambition of Athens, however, exceeded her strength. While in need of all her forces at home, she had dared to continue on a large scale her operations against Persia, In 465, Xerxes closed his inglorious reign, murdered by his grand vizier, and was succeeded by a son, Artaxerxes, who was too good-natured and too feeble to maintain peace throughout the empire. His chief peril lay in the revolt of Egypt. Having previously sent a fleet of 200 ships against Cyprus, Athens diverted a squadron of it to the support of the rebellion. In the hope of striking the king at the weakest point in his defence, and of gaining control of the rich Nile Valley. After several years of campaigning with various fortune in the neighbourhood of Memphis, the armament was destroyed, and few of the crews ever returned to their homes. An additional force of fifty triremes, coming too late to their relief, suffered the same fate. At the smallest estimate. This expedition entailed a loss of ninety ships with most of their crews. It was a terrible blow to Athens, and yet she could not rest till she had attempted to retrieve the disaster. Cymon's Expedition to Cyprus, 449, His Death After the Battle of Tanagra, in which a hundred companions of Cymon had proved their loyalty, and his, by heroism unto death, The great admiral was recalled from exile. In 450 he negotiated a five years' truce with Sparta, and the next year led a fleet of 200 ships to attempt once more the liberation of Cyprus. He died during the siege of Citium, but afterwards his troops won a victory by land and sea. It was the last battle in the 40 years' war between Hellas and Persia. The fleet returned home, however, without gaining any permanent advantage. The death of Cimon was an irreparable loss. He had won more naval battles than any other Greek. Under his command, the Athenians attained to their widest dominion and to the height of their political efficiency. Peace with Persia, 448. It was his greatest praise that after his death, Athens began negotiations with the Persian king for peace. The two great expeditions recently sent to the eastern Mediterranean had brought only loss, and there seemed no hope of accomplishing anything by further effort. No one could take Cimon's place, and no great advocate of offensive war against Persia remained. Evidently, too, Pericles began to recognize the limitations on the capacity of Athens, and preferred to husband her resources for the more immediate and narrow objects of his Aegean and peninsular policies. Before his state could vie successfully with Persia for dominion in the eastern Mediterranean, it was necessary for her to build up a broader and stronger empire at the expense of her near neighbors. The Athenians, accordingly, dispatched Callias, once the husband of Elpenici, to Susa to make peace. The proud king refused to acknowledge formally the cession of his Greek provinces in Asia Minor to Athens. He consented, however, to leave them undisturbed by land and sea. Athens, on her part, agreed to cease her attacks upon the possessions of the great king. Though dissatisfied with the slight concession, the Athenians could only accept the terms. True, they were no longer free to indulge in lucrative wars of plunder and impiracy upon the Persian domain, but henceforth they had unrestricted opportunity for commerce with Asia and Egypt, which had once enriched the Asiatic Greeks, and now promised larger returns than aggressive wars and buccaneering. Battle of coronea 447, Fall of the Athenian Continental League. While a certain advantage came to Athens from these eastern arrangements, she was unfortunate in the continental alliance recently formed. The Boeotian oligarchs whom Athens had expelled from their cities returned in force and defeated a small detachment of Athenians, taking most of them prisoners. To secure their release, Athens agreed to evacuate Boeotia. This action entailed the loss of Locris and Phocis. Soon afterward, Euboea and Megara revolted, and a Peloponnesian army invaded Attica. Only the energy and diplomacy of Pericles snatched his city from this extreme peril. The Spartan king withdrew, perhaps was bribed, megara returned to the peloponnesian league and the euboic revolt was crushed the thirty years peace 446 to five pericles and his colleagues saw clearly the exhaustion of their state the disaster in egypt the substantial failure of the great expedition to cyprus the heavy loss in men from the domestic wars and the vast expense of all these undertakings had overstrained the ability of Athens, and had necessitated a breathing time. In 445, accordingly, after the Euboic Campaign, the Athenians agreed with the Peloponnesians to a thirty years' peace on the basis of the status quo. Athens gave up all her recently acquired continental allies, retaining only Plataea and Norpactus. On the other hand, she received an acknowledgment of her maritime empire. Neither party was to interfere with the allies of the other, but each remained free to make treaties with neutral states. The principle of the open door was established for their commercial relations, and it was agreed that disputes should be settled by arbitration. The lack of a clear understanding as to the means and method of arbitration, however, rendered the last mentioned article inoperative. However faulty the terms, both parties to the treaty, freed from the heavy burden of the conflict, rejoiced in the advantages of mutual commerce, of internal recuperation, and improvement promised them by the truce. 2. The Athenian Empire. Completion of the change from confederacy to empire about 454. As the grand scheme of aggrandizement at the expense of Persia and of Hellenic neighbours had for the time being failed, Pericles could now cherish no other political ambition than the more thorough consolidation of the maritime alliance and the strengthening of the city with a view to future efficiency. The policy of converting it into an empire outlined by Aristides and developed by Cimon, was now brought to completion. One by one the states had been reduced to subjection till only Lesbos, Chios and Samos remained free. They paid no tribute but furnished naval forces for the wars waged under Athenian leadership. It was to their immediate interest to maintain the supremacy of Athens, Hence they willingly stood guard for her over the empire, and even favoured the strengthening of her power. Thus it was on the proposition of the Samians that the treasury was transferred from Delos to Athens. The failure of the Egyptian expedition, and the existence of war with the Peloponnesians, made this change a measure of precaution for the safety of the fund but the event so increased the preponderance of Athens as to mark, better than any other, the end of the transformation from confederacy to empire. The General Congress, which had long been insignificant, now wholly disappeared. Athens became the centre of the system, and Athena took the place of Apollo as its guardian deity. Use of the imperial funds... The tribute districts. It was the intention of Pericles to fulfil the duty of Athens towards the Confederacy by policing the Aegean Sea, and to use the remainder of the tributes for purely Athenian objects, including the payment of the citizens for civil as well as for military service, and the erection of public works at the capital. For the more effective collection of tributes, he divided the empire into five districts, Ionia, the Hellespont, Thrace, Caria, and the islands. The levies were reapportioned every four years by Athenian officials. In case an allied state felt itself unjustly assessed, it could only petition for a reconsideration. New Treaties with Individual States Generally, new treaties were made one by one with the individual states, imposed by the Athenian government, and formally accepted by the Allies. In Erythrae, for example, a garrison was established, whose commander was virtually governor of the city. Under him was a council of 120, taken annually by lot from the citizens above 30 years of age. All the Erythraeans swore to be faithful to Athens, and the annual council took oath not to revolt or to encourage rebellion. The courts of the city retained jurisdiction in ordinary capital cases, as well as in lesser crimes. The city was to send sacrificial victims to the Panathenaea, and any Erythraean who chanced to be present at the festival was to have a share of the offering. The relations were to be not merely political, but religious and social. The treatment of Chalcis was somewhat more severe. The Euboeans had brought Athens into great danger by revolting at a critical moment, and had wantonly massacred the crew of an Athenian ship. The worst offenders, including the knightly class in Calchas, were expelled, and their lands occupied by Athenian colonists. The Chalcidians were treated nearly the same as the Erythraeans. They were deprived, however, of the right to try capital cases involving disfranchisement, exile, or death. Such offences had to be brought before the Athenian courts. Other states were still more restricted in their jurisdiction. The Athenian colony, planted in Hystia had to send to the mother city all cases involving more than ten drachmas. Extent of the Imperial Jurisdiction Ground has been taken by some modern scholars that these restrictions applied not only to crimes, but also to civil suits between the members of the allied community. So much, however, cannot be proved by the sources. Such a requirement, too, would seem an intolerable incubus upon business, altogether inconsonant with the Athenian aim to foster prosperity throughout her empire. Opponents of the Periclean policy naturally exaggerated the interference. Even on the most favourable interpretation, however, the number of cases brought to Athens was great. Any citizen of an allied state was liable to appear before an Athenian court as plaintiff or defendant. And this circumstance tended to foster in him a cringing spirit. He is compelled to behave as a suppliant in the courts of justice, and to grasp the hands of the jurymen as they come in. For this reason, the allies find themselves more and more in the position of slaves to the Athenians. When no great interest of their own was at stake, the Athenian jurors were impartial, Conscious of their high calling as imperial judges, they loved and followed justice for its own sake. On the common ground of Attic law, they met the allies as their equals. In the case of a community against an Athenian official, their sympathies gravitated inevitably towards the former. Thus it was that the majority received better justice from Athens than formerly they had from their own local courts. The masses were assured protection from their oligarchs. The masters of the empire were strict in collecting tribute, and severe in punishment of rebellion, but gentle in their treatment of the loyal. To maintain our rights against equals, to be politic with superiors, and moderate towards inferiors, is the way of safety. Imperial weights, measures, and coins. For commercial reasons, and quite as much through pride in their imperial rule, the Athenians forced their money as well as their weights and measures upon the Allies, whose local mints were restricted to small denominations. For Athens and the islands, the standard was still silver, and the denomination most in use was the Four Drachma piece, about 73 cents, with its archaic head of Athena and the Owl an honest though inartistic coin, as acceptable throughout the civilised world as French or British gold is today. In the Anatolian cities, the standard was the Electrum Stata, usually worth 25 silver drachmas, for coins of this metal were essential to trade with the interior and the Pontic region. The extension of Attic weights, measures and coins, along with the Attic language and laws, pointed to the ultimate consolidation of the empire in a single state. This end, however, could only have been reached through the long continuance of the empire. Lack of representation in the government of the empire Citizenship in the leading city, no ally demanded so far as we know, and had it been offered, few perhaps would have accepted In far later time, the wholesale extension of the Roman franchise to the Mediterranean world did not prove an unmixed good. The fundamental defect in the Athenian imperial system, however, is sufficiently obvious to us. The Allies were given no hope of ever inquiring representation in the central government, but were convinced that Athens was bent on forever maintaining her place, not as president, but as master. Hence the political leaders of the allied states, with scarcely an exception, seized every opportunity to revolt. It was this weakness, accordingly, that made the system short-lived. As was formerly noticed, however, the concentration of political power in the leading city was due to the allies even more than to the Athenians colonization of the empire. The policy of colonizing vacant lands of the empire with Athenians, begun by Cimon, continued under Pericles. Particularly, the authors of rebellion were expelled and their lands occupied by Athenians. Colonies were established in Naxos, Andros and Sinope, on the Black Sea and elsewhere. The earlier settlement, in Cersonesi, Pericles enlarged and fortified. By these means he relieved the state of numerous idle agitators, assisted the needy, and overawed the allies by placing his colonists near them to watch their behaviour. Under his administration at least 6,000 Athenians were thus disposed of. The members of the colony, remaining Athenian, formed a self-governing community. Relieved of service in the army, they performed garrison duty. The Allies regarded these colonies as an encroachment upon their territory, and a menace to such freedom as they still retained. Though a temporary grievance, the colonial policy tended to atticise the Allies, and had time allowed, would have served as a powerful factor in consolidating the empire into a single state. Material Advantages Brought by the Empire Athens brought to these subjects the blessings of peace and protection. Under the aegis of a powerful navy, the ships of her humblest ally could safely plough the sea to Egypt and Tyre, to Pontus, or to the pillars of Heracles. Through importations, the luxuries of other lands became common comforts. The choice products of Italy and Sicily, of Cyprus and Egypt and Lydia, of Pontus and Peloponnese or wherever else it may be, are all swept into one centre through the sole means of the Maritime Empire. During a period of sixty-seven years, the profound quiet was disturbed by no invader, and in most states by no domestic war. Skilled industry flourished, farms were well stocked, and fields well tilled. In no period of the world's history has this region developed so great a prosperity. The Feelings of the Allies Under these circumstances, the feelings of the Allies towards Athens mingled good with ill. It was a grievance to carry their cases to Athens, and cringe like suppliants before the common men who composed the juries a hardship to pay the annual tribute although that was far less than would have been the cost of defending themselves however ineffectively they felt sorely too the presence of athenian garrisons and they cherished the genuine hellenic love of sovereign independence for their cities yet positive antipathy was limited to the old families whom the empire had robbed of their political ascendancy and the scheming marketplace politicians who saw in revolt their way to leadership in their states. The manufacturers and merchants, who paid the bulk of the tribute, must have been satisfied with the economic advantages assured them by Athenian rule, and the multitude in every state were loyal. At present, said a speaker in the Athenian assembly, the popular party are everywhere our friends, They either do not join with the oligarchs, or if compelled to do so, they are always ready to turn against the authors of the revolt. Hence, in going to war with a rebellious state, you have the multitude on your side. Paradoxical as at first view it may seem, the empire, if we reckon by majorities, was a more voluntary system than had been the confederacy. It had become an organisation not only for protection from foreign enemies, but for the maintenance of democracy. The Anti-Imperialists, Little Athenians The imperial aims of Pericles roused opposition at Athens. The banishment of Cimon had disorganised the conservatives, but after the peace with Persia, his kinsman Thucydides, son of Meletias, gathered up the remnants of the party with a view to checking the schemes of pericles he did not allow the notables to mix themselves up with the people in the public assembly as they had been wont to do so that their dignity was lost in the masses but he collected them into a separate body and by thus concentrating their strength was able to use it to counterbalance that of the other party though undistinguished in war, he was a better orator than Cimon, and a far more expert politician. He charged against Pericles the negotiations with Persia as traitorous to Hellas, the tyranny over the Allies, the transfer of the treasury to Athens, and its use in decking out the city like a vain woman. His party began to call Pericles a new Pisistratus, and to denounce him as a real tyrant. One of the comic poets asserted that the Athenians delivered into his hands the tribute from the towns, the towns themselves, the city walls to build or destroy, the right of making either peace or war, and all the wealth and produce of the land. When, however, the Conservatives appealed to ostracism, they were rebuked by the banishment of their leader and again were utterly disorganized pericles was therefore left unimpeded in his management of the empire the revolt of samos 440 to 39 it was still no easy task to hold the empire together shortly after this ostracism trouble came from samos the state which had been among the first to enter the confederacy and which had most strenuously upheld the Athenian power. It had gone to war with Miletus over the possession of Priene, a remarkable circumstance in view of the fact that Miletus was dependent. The latter complained to Athens, and Samos refused arbitration, but revolted under the instigation of the oligarchs. The Persians offered the aid of a Phoenician fleet, Byzantium revolted in sympathy, the existence of the empire came into extreme peril, but the Athenians met the crisis with extraordinary promptness. Pericles besieged the island, bringing newly invented siege engines to bear upon the walls. After nine months it surrendered and received the punishment formally meted out to Naxos and Tharsos. The empire emerged from the crisis more strongly cemented than before. The slain were given a magnificent funeral, and as Pericles descended from the speaker's stand after delivering the eulogy on the dead, the women of Athens crowned him with wreaths and ribbons like a victorious athlete. So highly did they value his service in that momentous campaign. The Black Sea Region The happy issue of this trouble left Pericles free to extend the prestige and power of Athens to the coasts of the Pontus. Sailing thither with a large, splendidly equipped fleet, he awakened in the native princes a feeling of respect for Athens, and won to her the allegiance of several Greek cities in that region, whose names appear thereafter in the lists of contributory states on the south shore he planted athenian colonies doubtless however the chief object was to promote closer relations with a region on which athens depended more and more for supplies for wheat and fish for ship timber metals dyes hides slaves and other commodities not merely the products of the sea and its coasts were thus brought to athens and her neighbours but also those of the distant interior. For from Olbia on the northern Pontic shore extended a great caravan route northeastward to the Ural Mountains and thence toward the rising sun through Central Asia to the borders of China. From these regions were imported furs, drugs, and gold. The founding of Thurii, 446. Still earlier, Pericles, following the path marked out by Themistocles, and adding political to commercial relations with the West, had begun to contract alliances with the states of Sicily and Magna Graecia. Great expectations centred in the colony of Thurii, sent out by him to the territory of Sybaris, a city which had been totally destroyed by the men of Croton. The country was marvellously fertile, and Pericles may well have hoped to make the new city the great commercial depot of Athens in the West. In composition, however, Thurii was a pan Hellenic foundation to which the Peloponnesian states, as well as those of the Athenian Empire, contributed settlers. Here, in fact, was a scheme of Pericles, by which he hoped to coin Hellenic acknowledgement of the leadership of Athens, a model city. Thurii was to be, in every sense, a modern city. Hippodamus, a famous civil engineer from Miletus, laid it out in broad, straight streets, crossing one another at right angles. Its laws were compiled by the sage Protagoras, who collected what was best in those of ancient Locri, of the various Chalcidian cities, of the cities of Peloponnese and Crete, and finally of Athens. Among these laws was a most enlightened provision for the compulsory education of children in schools supported by the state. So far as we know, this was the first body of law that rested upon a basis broader than the customs and ideas of a single state. This character made it the germ of the law of nations, and of the natural law afterward developed by the Romans. The cultural significance of the colony, therefore, was extraordinary. The non-Athenian element, however, dominated. And as the antipathy between Peloponnese and Athens, between Dorians and Ionians, grew bitter, the colony was not only lost to its mother city, but suffered grievously from civil strife. Furthermore, the political complications of Athens with the west led ultimately to her interference in Sicilian affairs, and to a disaster of which the Periclean Hellenes could not have even dreamed. End of chapter 14